Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the abortion referendum in Ireland and its implications for Northern Ireland and whether raising taxes is the only solution to fix the ailing NHS. I'm delighted to be joined by our Chief Economics Commentator, Martin Wolfe, Ireland Correspondent Arthur Beasley, Pharmaceutical Editor Sarah Neville, and Deputy Comment Editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Ireland's vote to unravel its draconian abortion laws last week had a dramatic impact. As well as a celebration of the country's increasingly liberal social attitudes, it has raised some pertinent questions about whether their northern neighbours are next. Unlike the rest of the UK, abortion is still severely restricted in Northern Ireland. Almost 200 MPs in Westminster have declared they are going to do something about it. But without a functioning government in Stormont and the socially conservative Democratic Unionists propping up Theresa May's government, there's no clear path forward. So Arthur Beasley, let's just begin by what happened in Ireland last weekend. The referendum on whether to relax the abortion laws has been going on for a couple of weeks now. It's been very tense with a lot of bad faith and bad language from both sides. Then this vote came through with a significant vote for the yes side. Yes, you're quite right, Sebastian. Uh, Abortion is one of the most divisive questions in Irish politics. The Irish constitution since 1983 had specific measures which prohibit abortion in pretty much all circumstances, bar a narrow few. And in a referendum one week ago, the Irish people voted by an overwhelming majority, which greatly exceeded all expectations to remove this ban and give the Irish government the power to introduce and then seek to have legislation passed through Parliament to provide for abortion. Now, this is seismic in Irish political terms, but what really surprised people was the fact that this proposal, after what had been quite a difficult campaign, was enough to secure the support of two-thirds of voters. And nearly every part of the Irish Republic voted for this young and old countryside and cities. Only one constituency, that's the constituency of Donegal, voted against the proposal. And what was very striking as results came through initially from exit polls last Friday and then from the formal count on Saturday was the extent to which this was a proposal which garnered huge support basically right throughout the land. And exit poll findings suggested that there were strong majorities for the proposal in all age groups up to the age group above 65. And one of the interesting dimensions here is that the two-to-one majority in favor of repeal essentially reverses the two-to-one majority back in 1983 
to introduce what was the constitutional prohibition on abortion. So when this came through Miranda Green, we heard very quickly from a lot of British politicians, people like Penny Mordaunt, who is the Women in Equalities Minister, Stella Creasy, prominent Labour MP, who said this is fantastic news. They'd campaigned, you know, they'd said their sentiments very strongly on this. But they said, well, about Northern Ireland next, because Northern Ireland has different rules to the rest of the UK on abortion. They more mirrored where the Republic of Ireland was. And they are very keen to do something about it. But as I said at the beginning, it's all very complex. Well, I think this is fascinating, actually, because personally, I'd actually been trying to sell in stories for quite some time on this weird anomaly where the one million women who live in Northern Ireland don't have the same fundamental rights as women in the rest of the UK. And so here we have something happening on the rest of the island of Ireland, which now throws quite a strong spotlight on that legal anomaly in Northern Ireland. So, I mean, from a female point of view, I think that's very healthy. As you say, it's very tricky for Mrs May. She's got a lot of very prominent women in her own senior Conservative ranks now campaigning for change. But she's got the devolved administration in Northern Ireland still not up and running again. And it would be politically very bad form to try and then start imposing social change and legal change from Westminster in the absence of a devolved administration instalment because, you know, legal issues and indeed health issues are devolved. So it's a really tricky one for Mrs May also because it means that she's sort of under attack even from her own side on the quality of her feminism, which considering she's only the second ever female Prime Minister of the UK is pretty tough on her, I think. Absolutely. And I think that the reason that people want to try and get this done from Westminster is to try and get around the fact there is no devolved administration. But we're sort of in this weird period at the moment, Arthur, where the negotiations to bring back the power share agreement have collapsed again. It's now been 18 months since there was a devolved administration, yet neither side seems particularly keen or eager to get back around the negotiating table. Nor is Westminster very keen to enact full direct rule, i.e. Westminster would rule directly from the House of Commons because they think that will make it even harder to bring back a devolved administration. So essentially, nothing's happening at the moment in Northern Ireland. I think you're right. I think what's interesting in terms of the Northern Ireland politics of this situation is that the two dominant parties, that's the DUP, which is propping up Theresa May in Westminster, and Sinn Féin, which is the Irish Republican Nationalist Party, those two parties have been divided over questions on the status of the Irish language, over questions around the treatment of the legacy of the past troubles in Northern Ireland, and also over gay marriage and also, indeed, over Brexit. And I think what happened in the last week is that you now have a new division emerging over the treatment of the abortion question. The DUP is very heavily against abortion. It has said it won't be railroaded into accepting abortion as a result of the referendum in the Republic of Ireland. But the new Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, took quite a public position in the referendum in the Republic and was one of the leading voices in the repeal campaign as the campaign went into its final stages. So these two parties are quite heavily divided already. It's very difficult to see how they might put together again the devolved administration, particularly with this Brexit question hanging over everyone in Irish politics. And now you have this new division over abortion as well.
It's very interesting, isn't it? Because it's also this kind of slide of our own politics in this part of the world, on the British Isles in general, towards the kind of culture wars territory of the US. Abortion has always been a huge issue in American politics. But here, it's really not figured, except from time to time when somebody pops up with a private member's bill trying usually to tighten the law on on abortion in the UK. But here we are, you know, we're talking about whether devolution can be maintained as the stable settlement for the UK on issues like gay marriage and abortion. It's very interesting. And it, of course, does play into the hands, rather, of those disruptive populists who've done so well here in the last few years. Because you've even seen people popping up in the last few days to say, well, if we're going to open the question of reforming Northern Ireland's abortion laws, what about our own abortion laws in the rest of the UK? Maybe it's time to tighten those up again. So you could actually see this becoming quite a dominant sort of sub-theme of the political debate in the next couple of years. Obviously, I think a lot of people in Westminster do actually want to make it that moment. There are a lot of MPs who see the British Isles as certainly marching ever to more liberal attitudes, the Republic of Ireland is, and they sort of see Northern Ireland, you know, you hear MPs talk about dragging it into the 21st century and all those sort of things. The way they are looking at trying to get around this is there's some legislation coming up on domestic abuse at the moment where there's an inquiry out and MPs think that the abortion laws in Northern Ireland actually contravene human rights and there's a very interesting court ruling coming next week which will decide on that. Now that by itself won't force the government's hand but that ruling if they do say that the very restrictive abortion rights in Northern Ireland are against rights then Theresa May's government's going to be under even more pressure so MPs want to force an amendment on this domestic abuse legislation if they do that and it gets adopted by the House of Commons the DUP are in quite a sticky situation because I agree with you if Theresa May's government tries to push this thing forward then they'll say well if you're going to do that then we'll withdraw support because this stuff as Arthur was saying is pretty tough red lines for them so the DUP might in fact just sort of get boxed out of this debate because of the fact there's no devolved administration. It's incredibly tricky and it's another layer of complication that Mrs May really didn't need at the moment considering the problems she's already got to do with Northern Ireland Brexit and the customs union. So it's going to get a lot more difficult. I think on this subject of women's rights in Northern Ireland, the May administration had already made a little bit of a change which had helped women there, which is that they ended the practice where women would have to come to the mainland UK and pay for abortions on the NHS here. So they can actually come to the UK and get abortions here for free now, which is something that happened under the May government. But it's the choice between doing small, discrete changes like that and actually having a full-blown confrontation with a party which is actually enabling you to have a majority in the House of Commons. And almost nothing that happens at the moment makes the government's position easier. And this is a sort of unpredictable, you know, known unknown in a way that's come to complicate matters further for them. Well, one big way of making it a big issue, Arthur, would be if there was a referendum. And obviously, we love referendums at the FT. And the idea of having another one north of the border on the issue would mirror what happened in the Republic of Ireland. Do you see any chances of that happening and how do you think it would go if there was to be a plebiscite on this? Very difficult to say which way it would go, but even more difficult to imagine a referendum on this topic in the absence of a devolved administration. 
I think that would be something that would be, I don't think it would sit well with the effort that has been underway to try and put the parties back together again. That is proving immensely difficult. The whole thing is made more complicated by Brexit. You had a majority in Northern Ireland to remain in the EU, notwithstanding the fact that the DUP was on the pro-leave side. And at this point, I'm not sure that a referendum in Northern Ireland on this question, however that might be brought about, would serve to improve the prospects of getting the devolved administration back together again. I feel, Miranda, it wouldn't be one of our podcasts if we didn't talk about Brexit very briefly (laughs) here. You know, we're sort of in complete status at the moment on the Brexit question and the latest proposal we've heard, and it's all about Ireland as well at the moment, that no progress is being made because nobody's willing to budge, no one's really willing to compromise. And we heard from David Davis this week of a Max Fact 2, the all-new and improved maximum facilitation solution, which essentially would include a 10-mile, almost like a no-go zone or a safe zone between the two areas to basically make sure and smooth out those customs checks. There's nothing actually on the Irish border. You know, the whole thing does seem to be getting more fantastical as it goes along. The idea that you would have two borders, you have a border with Northern Ireland and this this zone, and a border with the Republic of Ireland. The whole thing just seems as if we're coming up with more and more crazier ideas which are less and less realistic. It's totally mad. I mean, it's like the division of Berlin and what would you have, a sort of no man's land in between? I mean, it's, it's bonkers. But what you have also got going on, and I don't know really truly whether to be heartened by it or not at this stage, so exhausting have we all become on this subject but you know there's a group of the reasonable compromise remainers in the Tory party who do seem to be genuinely supporting Mrs May but wanting to find some deal that can be sold to enough people on the Tory and DUP benches to enable the process to move forward. And I think there is a slight feeling that those very hardline Brexiters on the Tory benches, the Jacob Rees-Moggs, etc., did slightly overplay their hand a few weeks ago. And they've been slightly put back in their box, not least by Mrs May personally, if the reports coming out of the private meetings of the 1922 committee, etc., are correct. So there's a sense of struggling towards some sort of compromise. But of course, it has to be a compromise that's also acceptable to Brussels, which is often left out of the conversation here in London. And Arthur, what's your sense about where things are on Brexit and trying to find a solution on the border question? I think we're far away from anything that would um, be acceptable either to Brussels or, or to Dublin. And I mean, people are wondering about the story today that appeared in The Sun about this MaxFac 2 proposal. It seems to be very, very scant on detail. There are concerns around the integrity of Europe's single market where this proposal to be advanced. And really the, the sense is that we're coming right up now to this next European summit at the end of the month and there's very little sign of anything from London that's going to enable a big breakthrough at that time. And time is marching on, and uh, we're heading now into the summer period, and there's a sense of total disarray in the talks, it seems to me. How should Britain's National Health Service be funded in the future? 
Britons love it and continue to demand a high-quality service that is free at the point of delivery. According to a new report, it's going to need a lot more cash if that's going to continue. About a 3% increase in spending over the next 15 years just to maintain current service levels. The ageing population is the main cause, but there are still big questions about where this money is going to come from and politically, what's the best way to do it. Sarah Neville, let's just begin because, of course, the NHS has this very special part in Britain's life. And as Martin Wolf has written his column this week, it is that old adage about being the closest thing we have to a national religion. People really love it, but it's clearly going through some very difficult times at the moment. Yes, I think that's absolutely right, Seb. We've taken the decision in the, for many decades now that the NHS is the repository of our national values. I mean, you can't imagine any other country which in the opening ceremony of its Olympics would have featured doctors and nurses as we did in London in 2012. And I think that massively complicates the whole issue of funding the NHS because one thing that... Britons will not consider, or at least politicians have decided they won't consider, is any sort of top-up in terms of, for instance, you know, paying £20 to see a general practitioner, you know, a primary care physician. In other countries, that's routine. But it's something that particularly politicians feel that they can't contemplate offering up to the electorate. They feel it would be political death at a general election, to even suggest departing from the notion of an entirely taxpayer-funded National Health Service. But politicians do love to reform the NHS, that every sort of five or ten years they come along, promise not to do big reforms, then do big reforms. And ultimately, none of it really seems to make that much difference because it's sort of, we're in this situation now where it's just rocketing from one crisis to another. That's right. I think one of the downsides of having a national state-funded system is that everything that happens to it is sort of ipso facto political. And as you rightly say, Seb, politicians find it very, very hard to resist massive top-down reorganisations. To be fair to the current incumbent, the Secretary of State for Health, Jeremy Hunt, he actually has managed to steer away from that. But as you rightly say, that hasn't changed the fact that the NHS is in considerable trouble now. Just this week, we found out that the hospital sector is almost £1 billion in the red. And that is probably truly a great understatement because that £1 billion figure has depended on various one-off bungs, if I can put it that way. So the underlying state of the finances, you know, maybe as much as £4 billion in the red. So it's a conundrum as to uh, how this service is going to deliver on taxpayer funding alone a 21st century developed nations health service. Well, let's throw that conundrum on to Martin Wolf. You've written in a column this week, Martin, about a new report out from the IFS respected think tank about how to sustain healthcare funding. What do they suggest and what do you think of it? I think we've got to start off with following on from what Sarah said, is that we have this very strange attitude, which is that while we think it's a sacred object, we don't really want to pay for it. And so we don't pay very much. I mean, one of the most remarkable facts is that the total public spending on health in the UK is actually slightly less than total public spending on health in the US. 
and it is pretty well behind what most other countries pay, though through insurance arrangements, which are essentially national arrangements of this kind too. So we don't pay very much. In fact, we pay sort of in the middle of the European countries. And we get, as a result, a pretty mediocre system. The second thing that's very important to understand is in the last eight years, health has genuinely been protected in the austerity program. So it's relatively done very well. But in the context of an overall austerity, which has meant that compared to what is needed and what it had in the past, it's really been starved. And so we are now feeling that. But because it's been relatively protected, it means that everything else has really been squeezed, including social care, which falls onto the health budget in a different way, so that squeezing more out somewhere else is really difficult. So then that gets to what the report is saying. What the report is saying is to maintain the existing service, given the backlogs which have arisen because of the past stringency for the health service, we have to increase real spending by 3% a year. And to have a really improved service on sort of world levels, we probably have to increase spending 4% a year. Given the squeeze on everything else, we're going to have to raise more money. And there are a number of ways of doing it, but they, I think, essentially come to the conclusion the bulk of it has to come from taxes. I think that's right. And then there's an interesting debate about what sort of taxes. Isn't there a danger, though, which I think you've just hit on, that there is a tendency with the NHS that you put money into it and then it wants even more money? That, you know, Gordon Brown very infamously in 2002 added a penny on national insurance to give a huge boost into the health service. The NHS was delighted and came back a few years and asked for more money. So, We are clearly at a moment where we need to decide what kind of service we want. Do we want the same level of provision? Do we want more or do we want less? But is the solution just to keep throwing money at the problem? Well, I think I actually am one of those people who view that part of the solution is just throw money at it because essentially... It's incredibly useful to compare us with other countries. Don't think of it as a British debate. Every country in the world has a problem with every developed country. And most of them spend rather more than we do. And they have exactly the same pressures for rising spending as we have. And I think it's an absolutely safe bet. I'm going to predict it that 20 years from now, we will spend a higher share of GDP on health than we do now. I don't know how we'll get there, but that's what's going to happen because that's what people will insist upon. Of course, some of it will be wasted. But all the evidence we have, interestingly, is, of course, it's inefficient, lots of inefficiency. But actually, the British Health Service seems, given the resources in it, to be pretty efficient by global standards. So the question then, Martin, is how do you raise this money? There's been a lot of talk over the past sort of six months or so about hypothecation. So are you bringing a special NHS tax, inverted commas? That would be something that would go to the country and say, we're going to ask you more money and it's going to directly go to that. How do you feel about that? As an economist, my view is that it's a fraud, and most economists would feel this, because nobody really thinks we're going to have a tax which is truly entirely dedicated to this goal, and it's the only source of funding for the health service, because, first of all, that's never happened in the past for any consistent period or anything important, and do we really expect that if that particular tax, for some reason, falls in value because there's a crisis in the sectors that are being taxed or the relevant income is falling, that we would then start cutting health spending just because of that of course we wouldn't so in fact the hypothecation really wouldn't work as an economic activity as a fiscal thing so it becomes down to politics if you can persuade people it's a sort of bit of deceit i call it a fib that 
this increase in tax is really going to the health service. And if people will really trust you, even though it isn't true, then maybe it's the most sensible way of getting more money out of people. But I come back to the simple fact. We wanted a national health service, as Sarah's rightly said. We have a fairly skimpily funded one by international standards, by French standards, German standards, Dutch standards. I'm not just talking about America. And we're going to have to pay more. And our real problem is that the British really don't like paying much tax. Those countries are more heavily taxed than we are. We don't want that. We want the National Health Service. We don't want to pay any tax. I don't think hypothecation will solve that. Well, Sarah, this is not just people who don't want to pay taxes. As politicians are quite reluctant to raise taxes to do this. That the public finance in the UK are still in a pretty tenuous situation here. And the Conservatives very much selling themselves as the party of low tax and don't necessarily want to be seen to be increasing this. But we have heard reports that to coincide with the NHS's 70th birthday, which is this year, that there's going to be a big birthday gift from Theresa May, which is trying to deliver this 3% rise the IFS is talking about just to keep the show on the road. Can you see that happening? Can you see that getting through Parliament? And if they get the 3% through, will that be enough? And will we come back to the point Martin was saying that actually what it really needs is 4% a year? It may be worth actually mentioning that that 4%, which is being talked about currently as being a, a massive hill to climb, is only the average increase that the service had from the 1950s, very soon after it was founded, right through to the start of the Great Recession. So perhaps it's all too easy to turn around and say this 4% is unsustainable, the public won't wear it. But they certainly did wear it. We as Britons wore it for essentially 60 years. So that is one perspective, perhaps, on it. But I think in terms of the basic policy parliamentary arithmetic. Clearly, at the moment, that is very difficult for Theresa May, the Prime Minister. She doesn't have an overall majority. But that said, MPs across the spectrum want to be seen to be calling for and supporting a well-funded NHS. But I think, as Martin alluded to, the problem is that because every other area of the budget has now been so squeezed, the headroom that existed for much of the NHS's um, nearly 70-year history isn't there any longer. For many years, the peace dividend provided that kind of headroom. We just don't have it anymore. So Paul Johnson, the head of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the other day cast it as a generational choice, which I thought was an excellent way of putting it. We as Britons have to decide, do we want our state to essentially, in 20 years or so, be the National Health Service? I think it's perhaps a slight exaggeration, but it would certainly become more important. I think as health spending would rise towards 10% of GDP from about 7.3%. Everything Sarah said is right. And there's one other aspect of it which adds to the problem. In that 70 years, growth in the economy has been faster than it has been in the last eight years. So managing 4% real growth when in health spending, when the economy on average is growing 25 to 3 is one thing. When it's growing less than 2 over time, that makes quite a big difference. So a lot is going to depend on whether growth recovers. That's the second big challenge, which is even more problematic, of course, is how do we get productivity growth? In its absence, the choices get much more painful. And I do think they are absolutely fundamental choices. I have no doubt that charging won't solve this. We can charge for things, but the amount of money you raise in this context, it's so massive, the need. It will only be a little. In the end, 
if we want a universal service, particularly if we want social care to improve too, which is essential, otherwise it will be overwhelmed by the pressures of ageing in the health service, we are going to have to pay more taxes. And politicians are going to have to agree on that. How they do it seems to me a secondary issue. And the truth is neither side really wants to make clear what this means. I think that's true that one thing I've picked up over the past couple of weeks is that the Conservatives in particular are fearful of the next election becoming a referendum on the NHS because if they do that, they will lose because Labour will always outspend them, will always outpromise and it all goes back to that initial point that we've heard again over recent weeks that the Conservatives didn't vote for the NHS when it was first founded. Labour has always been seen as the protector of the NHS. So I really do think they will do something about it. How and where this money comes from is going to be a separate issue because I think some Conservatives would like the growth, as they put it, the idea of the economies seems to be doing better than growth protections to pick up the slack because getting a specific tax rise through it's an ideological thing but it's also a practical thing let's say for a moment Sarah this doesn't happen we've had this debate this is not the first time we've talked about it on this podcast or at all we don't get this rise through and spending continues as it is at the moment we don't get that extra three or four percent what happens then well I think the treasury would say what happens is the NHS has to become more productive And it certainly is the case that when large sums have been put into the service in the past, you alluded, Sev, earlier to the billions that were poured in by Tony Blair and Gordon Brown the early years of this century, what happened was productivity fell. So there is an argument to be made that a leaner NHS will be a more efficient NHS, leaner in the sense of not getting the substantial rises that many within the service would like. And there is still a lot of waste in the NHS. One of the curious things is that the NHS as a big centralised system should have massive purchasing power. But in fact, each individual constituent part of the service does its own purchasing. So you can get situations where exactly the same piece of kit, you know, one hospital will pay several times more than its neighbour down the road. Now, to be fair, the service has started to tackle this and we have seen some improvements on that. But there is still much that could be done. And some of the more go-ahead parts of the service are also experimenting in really fascinating ways with having hospitals, primary care and community care all work much more closely together. I went to Dorset a few weeks ago where they've been bending the curve on reducing hospital admissions, reducing the length of hospital stays. And that's happened essentially through organisational changes, goodwill between different parts of the system, not underpinned by legislation, but rather just happening on the ground because everybody concerned knows it's common sense. But the danger of the efficiency approach, Martin, is that there are limits to that. And I think how and where they are would have to be seen. But if you put it entirely on the back of that, then you're still going to end up with the same problems, which is hospitals with huge powers of debt and various NHS trusts continually going into the red. I wouldn't say that the efficiency argument is a red herring because, of course, any organisation can be made more efficient. My own view, very clear from the evidence, is that despite the waste, and there was a lot of waste, the Brown-Blair splurge is what actually allowed the stringency of the last eight years because they put in a lot of capital. And actually, to be more efficient, you need to invest. That's one of the big themes which I couldn't cover in my article of the IFS report. But obviously, there's a limit to how much efficiency can get you. Just think of it. If you have the money, do you think you get the same service? So I'm sure we will have to raise spending because underlying demand is fundamentally rising. And unless sort of people stop living so long, and you know, we will have this very similar problem. 
there is one aspect of it which is very interesting. The healthiest population in the world probably is, are the Japanese. Why is it? Because they live an extraordinarily healthy lifestyle. And this is something that we should be thinking about. Of course, we do think the health service will keep us healthy. One thing that's become pretty clear is, of course, it won't keep us healthy forever. We know this. But actually, the way we live is the most important determinant of our healthiness. And I think government could do much more to promote a healthy lifestyle. And that's something we don't think about enough. And finally, one last very quick question for you. In 10 years' time, will the NHS still be recognisable as it is today? Sarah? I think it will still be primarily a free-to-use service. I would like to think that one thing will have changed a lot is the amount of care that's provided out of hospital, that I would love, like Martin, to see better-funded social and community care and indeed more money going into public health, because one of the real sadnesses of the last few years is that the preventative health budget has really taken a clobbering. But that would be my hope, that we would see a structurally somewhat different service with more care out of hospital. And finally, Martin. I think that's the right direction to go. We are going to keep the NHS, but we should really reach a consensus on what a better NHS would look like, how it's going to integrate with social care and how we're going to improve the healthiness of our entire population. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Martin, Arthur, Sarah and Miranda for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.